0: Good afternoon and welcome to this week's Serious Security Symposium from Purdue University. Before we start, I want to ask you to please mark your calendars for the 24th Annual Serious Cybersecurity Symposium, our signature event. This year it will be an in-person event at Purdue University on March 28th, 29th. It is open to the general public. Uh, the agenda has not yet been posted, but we'll hear within the month um, and we're looking forward to, to the event. It'll also coincide with the 25th anniversary of Sirius. So with that, uh, I am pleased to kick off uh, this session. Gideon Rasmussen has a long history in the cybersecurity industry, dating back to his military career before we called anything cyber. His experience includes a number of security positions in several industries within the commercial within commercial companies. He's a prolific uh, LinkedIn poster where he and I first became friends as I started following his many thoughts and realized that I saw my, found myself nodding my head to many of the things that he was sharing. So he shares his thoughts and insights often on the evolving field of cybersecurity. I encourage you to take a look at him. He's known uh, online as the virtual CSO which is also the name of his consulting company. He spoke at the Sirius Security Seminar a bit over a year ago, and we're delighted to have him back today. To get in? Welcome.
1: Terrific. Thanks so much, Joel. So we're gathered here today to speak about program maturity and within the cybersecurity and also operational risk context. So um, a little bit of a different flavor there. We're going to move quickly through the agenda and cover a great deal of information. We're going to start with minimal compliance and pivot into common controls and then risk management. And finally, strong risk management, which is for companies that have very, very low risk tolerance. We will take some time to talk about influencing funding. So that's part of really the strategy beyond having a a maturity model is you have to get the funding and support to move through those different tiers. I am speaking today to cybersecurity students as an audience, and I will be using US Air Force crash course format. So we're going to move very, very quickly. The good thing is that this session is being recorded. And if you'd like to send me an email or a LinkedIn message, at the end, I can also get you a copy of the slides. So just let the information wash over you, and you're going to have access to the deck and to links within the deck after the session has concluded. I will ask you to hold your questions until the end, but you can use the the Zoom feature to um, create a, a question within that queue, and we'll get to it as we start to conclude this session. So let's talk a little bit more about program maturity within cybersecurity and, and operational risk management. So level one will be minimal compliance, and some organizations start there. Um, you might have a startup company, um, or you may just have an organization that is at a lower level of maturity, and typically minimal compliance will be with some sort of control framework like the NIST cybersecurity framework, or there may be some minimal compliance to laws or regulations. Next level two, we have common controls. So the control frameworks are not meant to be very, very specific or prescriptive. So there are controls that we're all accustomed to within cybersecurity, such as a web application firewall, which will fall into this second level of maturity. It may not be called out explicitly in the control framework, but these are controls that as cybersecurity professionals we expect to see in place and we view them as necessary. Level three is risk management, which is called for in in most of the control frameworks and laws and regulations, but may sometimes be skipped over in practice. So we'll get down a little deeper into what types of um, analysis assessment and mitigation should be in place. And then finally, we'll get to level four, strong risk management. And again, this is typically for organizations that have a very low risk tolerance, think financial institutions, uh, federal government, and then also pharmaceutical companies. So starting with minimal compliance, maturity level one, most organizations will use either the NIST Cybersecurity Framework, or internationally, it's more likely that they'll use ISO 27001. I'm a proponent of the NIST Cybersecurity Framework. It's 108 controls, which provide a foundation. So we'll have a requirement, for example, for encrypting data at rest. But I also like the presentation layer that it provides for executives. So. If we were walking over to an elevator and we were to get into the elevator with an exec and they were to ask, tell me about our cybersecurity program. You could say something like, first we look to identify risk to the organization, and then we deploy protective controls to prevent cybersecurity issues. We detect suspicious activity, and then we respond Uh, either with an incident response plan, disaster recovery, um, and or crisis communications. And finally, when we recover, we look for things like root cause analysis to to prevent reoccurrence. So if you notice there, I didn't really get deep into technical controls or some of the traditional domains of information security, such as access control or physical security. And it's for good reason, if we're talking to a business leader who spent most of their their life in accounting, as an example, before becoming a CEO, we start to leave them behind if we get too far in the weeds of cybersecurity. Also at this minimal level of compliance, it's necessary to include requirements from laws, regulations and contractual obligations, such as the PCI data security standard, if your organization stores processes or transmits payment card or credit or debit card numbers. Be mindful though, when you think in terms of laws, et cetera, from regulatory bodies, that they're biased towards their interests. So as an example, the payment card brands that require adherence to the PCI data security standard only care about the security of their payment card numbers. And, and if your organization has some sort of disaster and cannot recover, that's not really a concern to them. So it's important to really focus on your organization rather than minimal compliance. So still at this first tier of minimal compliance, I did wanna take a little bit of time to talk about data management because oftentimes it's overlooked or may not be done well. And obviously we need to know where our data is as a first step if we're going to try to secure it. So oftentimes when I first get involved with an organization, I'll ask for a very, very high level view of what types of data we have and where it's stored. So you see the data repository field. It's also good to understand not only the types of data that we have, but the volume of it. So if we have a very small volume of data in a data repository, we may, place a higher priority on a, on a different area that has similar sensitive information and significantly more records. And then we we get a little deeper into data management with the data owner who would be the person or the role that would give permission for data to be stored in a certain area. For example, they would give permission before moving it outside of our on-premises, IT environment to a vendor environment. And then also you have the data custodian, so that's the role that's responsible for protecting that information. So to get a little deeper beyond just having a system or application inventory, we'll talk about having a configuration management database and some fields that I recommend. So. First off, it's good to have an understanding of the system contacts in the event that we need to take the system down to patch it or um, we're responding to some sort of an incident. It's also good to have management and tech exec contacts in the event that we need to escalate. So if we're having difficulty um, either getting a patch installed, getting the maintenance window for that, or we have a custom application running uh, in this environment and we're trying to get a code fix uh, created and tested in in a critical situation, then it's important to be able to reach out potentially to the management and tech exec contact uh, to get that priority and to get that response. We can also obviously have specific metrics and reporting that then goes to the right people associated with the systems and applications. You can see on the left side um, towards the bottom there, the application record that's meant to be a link. So within a configuration management database, you can come in on an infrastructure record, maybe a server or a virtual machine, and then click over to the application record, or you could come into the application record and connect uh, to the information about the underlying infrastructure production status. Is this a production system? Is it dev? And then you can see some more risk-based information in the the right fields. So uh, business criticality, Uh, does this system need to be up um, five nines? Is it internet facing? Is it vendor hosted? Uh, What types of data is on it? And then you can see that the CI data certified by and certified date, CI is configuration item. So we're going to want someone at least once a year, typically the system owner to look at this record and see if it's still current and if, It needs to be updated. Oftentimes you might have someone move uh, into a different role. So maybe the alternate system owner or one of the data owners has changed that. During this process, the system owner would update that and that would be the new certified date. It's also important to use some sort of discovery tool uh, to detect new systems as they come up online. Especially with VMs and in in cloud environments, and also to use some sort of discovery tool to detect unstructured data in areas where we don't expect it. So that um, in the privacy career field, they talk that talk about that as data linkage. So if we expect primarily our sensitive data to be in our production environments, and maybe we might have some sensitive data on laptops and we have, we're finding it all over the place, then we want to make sure that we get it to the areas where we expect it, where we have uh, enhanced security controls. So so some additional thoughts around inventory there. So level two, we're going to talk about common controls quickly. So again, control frameworks such as the NIST cybersecurity framework or ISO 27001 are not meant to be prescriptive or very, very specific. So that leaves what I would refer to as gaps that we need to fill. Um, and, and typically, we start to fill the gaps with common controls. So some examples of controls that you will not see explicitly called out in the NIST cybersecurity framework or patching, penetration testing, having a phishing test program having a security operations center uh, and or active monitoring by cybersecurity professionals 24-7, 365. So as I mentioned those controls to you, they're not arcane, they're not unusual. We would by and large expect them to be in place in an environment that hosts sensitive data. So those are some examples and some easier ways to identify gaps rather than just by our experience or knowledge is to look at something like the the Center for Internet Security's critical security controls listing. And we may decide, okay, one, we're gonna call out some of these controls because they're already in place, but also maybe something like a web content filter isn't in place today. And that kind of reminds us that, We think we wanna get to that maybe next year or the year after that. I did wanna talk about risk-based deployment of controls. So we're not just going to have a cybersecurity control and deploy it everywhere. Ideally, what we do is if we're adding controls to the environment, we're adding them based on risk severity. So I'll get into an example for web applications. So. In, in this model, we're saying, we're gonna conduct source code scanning of all web applications throughout the organization. And for those applications that store, process, or transmit sensitive data, we're going to have source code scanning and we're going to add as a second layer dynamic application scanning of those web apps with sensitive data. And for internet exposed, web applications that host sensitive data, we're going to have all three of those bullets. So source code scanning, dynamic application scanning, and penetration testing. So you can see as the perceived risk grows, we're gonna deploy controls in that manner. And as I go through this common controls maturity level two, I'm quite certain that those of you on the line are seeing these as necessary controls. They're really common sense if you're familiar with cybersecurity. And really, all we're doing is filling holes in the control framework. And this is basic due diligence. So, nothing to be proud of, but we do need to go that second layer beyond the bare bones foundational controls in a control framework. So, let's step into maturity level three risk management. And I did want to call out examples of how control frameworks actually call for risk management. There are times in the industry where people will say a control framework is compliance and it really doesn't address risk. And I I don't agree with that. And we're looking at Uh, I guess six controls on the screen from the NIST cybersecurity framework, requiring risk management processes, organizational risk tolerance, and we're going to have a slide on that next, Uh, but also really to have some sort of risk analysis, risk assessment, and then prioritized risk mitigation. So... From a risk management perspective, we really have four options. We can accept risk, and typically that's done with a risk registry entry or a plan of action and milestones, which is more in the federal government. But if we have a risk register entry or a POAM, we're going to make sure that we have a formal process around that and the right levels of management are signing off based on the risk severity. We can also avoid risk. So there are times where a line of business or a business unit will say, I'm not doing business in that country, their decision. Risk mitigation is something that we're much more accustomed to in cybersecurity. So as an example, we'll run a vulnerability scan and we need to remediate that within standards and oftentimes will patch or will apply a configuration within infrastructure and risk transference with as fast as we need to go during this presentation, the easiest example I could give you is cybersecurity insurance. So let's talk about a risk tolerance statement, which is alluded to in one of the NIST cybersecurity framework requirements. And this is really, management or senior executives conveying tone from the top when it comes to cybersecurity. So in this example, management is saying they have a low tolerance for external intrusions and operational risk, a moderate tolerance for compliance risk. So we're not just going to adhere to every compliance requirement uh, that we're subjected to. We may take some risk there. trying to keep that balance between what controls are required and what additional controls are we gonna deploy on our own? And and that sometimes leaves compliance requirements that we've addressed a a different way would be an example. Also legal risk. So uh, in this case, management is saying in in some rare cases, we may need to go to court uh, over something like an unenforceable contract and what will accept that risk. But again, management pivots back and says reputational risk, we only have a low tolerance for that. So what's great about a risk tolerance statement is if it's not in place and as cybersecurity professionals or leaders, we can convince executive management to publish something like this when we come back for funding or we need to implement a new control, we can tie it back to this tone from the top. I do wanna talk about threat landscape and controls analysis, which is a very simple methodology uh, that I've created and you're welcome to use. And really the idea behind it is we start from business and IT executives side of the table. And we spend a good deal of time in their space before we gradually transition to cybersecurity. So if you think about many of the assessment reports that are out there, there's one page, which is an executive summary. And and sometimes that can leave a foul taste in the mouth of executives. So let's jump into it. So we start with inherent risk of the organization. So what is the company profile? What industry is the organization in? What types of digital physical assets does the, does the organization have? And logically, what types of potential adversaries do we have that want to take control of those assets? Then also we start to think about the adversary, right? So. What are their techniques for compromising data? What are their capabilities? Oftentimes they will leverage the cybercrime ecosystem. So if they reach an impasse where they can't get by a certain control, they may leverage or contract with another criminal organization to get in. Let's talk a little bit about potential impact and we can leverage reputable sources like the Verizon data breach investigations report or ACFE's occupational fraud report, which also comes out annually. And then we'll talk about risk tolerance. Now, hopefully you convinced the executives to put out a risk tolerance statement and that's a copy paste, right? So we could take that last slide and put it right into this section of the report. And now finally, we're starting to pivot into Risk mitigation, so we wanna be fair and balanced in this analysis. So we're gonna start by saying, here are the the preventive and detective controls that are in place that mitigate or reduce the risk that we've been talking about so far. So we're gonna talk about protection boundaries and that's really the data repositories where most of our sensitive data resides. What type of control framework are we using? So we mentioned this CSF, ISO 27001. And then at a very high level, what are the risk assessments? So annual audits, assessments, uh, vulnerability scanning, pen testing. So it's not all just in that assessment, risk assessment space, but by and large, what kind of uh, controls do we have in place to identify risk? And obviously we start to address that then. So finally, towards the end, the final section, we talk about the residual risk. So we went all the ways from what type of company do we have? What type of adversaries? What are their capabilities? Uh, how do we mitigate risk in a good way, right? And the residual risk are recommended controls. Where do we have room for improvement? So I've used this really simple way. It's more like a, a presentation layer of an assessment and it really resonates uh, with executives. So uh, I welcome you to try that as you move forward with your careers as well. So let's talk about attack-centric controls and, and kind of that focus, right, in, in risk management. So. We're gonna talk briefly as we go from top to bottom about how an adversary may gain access to an IT environment, find sensitive data and try to exfiltrate it or export it from the organization. And we wanna have controls in place that make that difficult, or at the very least detect that suspicious activity. So first off, an adversary is going to want to deliver malware. And I think most of you on the line know that that's oftentimes by a phishing message, a, a social engineering email uh, with a malicious link or uh, a file attachment that helps that adversary get a foothold and, and gain access to a system within the IT environment. So the the next row, the adversary has gained system access. So how can we make that difficult, right? So one, we want to make sure that end users do not have administrative access to their workstations, to their company-owned PCs or laptops, because if malware uh, gains a foothold and someone's logged in as admin, it's going to be more effective that way. Then we need to make sure that there's some sort of advanced endpoint protection in place, commonly referred to as EDR and XDR now, but really good endpoint protection to protect against malware, and then also integrated with log monitoring and event correlation or SIM. I'm also a proponent of allow listing, which is software that only allows known software and executables binaries to run on the system. So if malware and or ransomware gets introduced to the system, the allow listing software won't let it run. So um, terrific way to to bolster your security there. And then having two-factor or multi-factor authentication for servers is another good approach. So next, with the adversary having gained access to one system, Thankfully, they probably don't have access to the sensitive data that they need yet. So they're going to try to pivot and move laterally east to west across the network. So how can we make that difficult? Well, network segmentation, right? So let's say we have payment card data or research and development data. If we have that sensitive information on its own networks and we require a second level of authentication, that's going to make it difficult for adversaries to get to that data. So to give you an example, if, if, I've met, if I'm meant to have access to that research and development data, in the morning I log into the network, I'm, I really just have access to the common use network, and now to get to that research and development data, I have to authenticate to a jump box or a bastion host Hopefully we've got multi-factor authentication for that too. And now once I've got that second layer of authentication completed, I can get in to that secondary network that's segmented and I can access the research and development data. So next row down data exfiltration. So at this point, the adversary has access to sensitive data. or a bad day is getting worse, right? So this could also be insider threat, right? So we may have an authorized user that has access to sensitive data and they want to export it or exfiltrate it. So how could we make that more difficult? Well, granular source and destination firewall rules. And I've got to step away from this a little bit because we could really get dragged down into a a full morning long presentation, a day long presentation, where we just talked about how to adversaries exfiltrate data from an IT environment, and how might we prevent that right so obviously, we want to make sure that people can't plug a USB drive in, we want to prevent access to personal email like Gmail or going out to things like Dropbox but Unfortunately, I don't have time to cover more than that, but it's important to research how adversaries conduct data exfiltration and how to prevent that. So next, we, we do have an adversary in the environment and we wanna detect them. So some ways to do that are threat hunting, right? So um, this is where we have qualified security professionals that uh, access the SIM, and we're, you know, we're searching through logs and events, and we're trying to find signs of the adversary. So rather than passively saying, we've got endpoint protection and we've got the SIM uh, logging and event correlation, it, it's just automatically going to notify us if there's an adversary. We really need to look and we can do that leveraging um, cyber threat intelligence. Data uh, from organizations like CISA. It's also good to take a look at the MITRE ATT&CK framework if you haven't already. Um, it speaks about adversarial techniques, uh, tactics, and procedures. Um, so next, we've at, we've identified an adversary in the environment, and thankfully we have our incident response plan. Hopefully, it has scenarios. It's not just generic, right? And we leverage our incident response plan to find what accesses the the adversary has and eradicate them from the environment, prevent them from getting back in. It's important to have incident response exercises so we're not doing this for the first time when we find an adversary. Did want to discuss emerging threats and countermeasures, right? We absolutely need that in risk management. So. Each time I do this presentation, I update it. So here's a couple of recent alerts from CISA. So one is around weak security controls that are exploited for initial access. Uh, So it's great to get these alerts and advisories from CISA and to go in and see what our threat actors doing today and what our recommendations for controls to either prevent that access or at least identify it and respond. We also have another CISA alert where there's an exfiltration tool that was used to steal sensitive information from a defense contractor. So I don't care that I, I'm not in a defense contractor organization. I wanna know what are the adversaries doing. Um, they, they use those tools and pass them around. So. It's good to know what's going on now with these threat actors, what techniques, tactics, and procedures they have, and then to take action internally. Uh, I, I have some bullets there at the bottom because there's a fair amount of times where I'll work with security teams, and sure enough, everybody's su- subscribed to the CISA advisories and alerts, but the question is, you know, if you've got five or seven people that are all thinking the other person's doing something. Do we have a process where when each advisory comes in, each alert comes in, we look through it and we decide at a high level, what if this applies to us? What actions should we take? And then to make plans to do that. You may have one or two things that you're, going, you're saying I'm gonna do right now and maybe have a to-do list or a list of things that you may do this year or next year. It's great to hang on to the things that we can't do today in these advisories, but to use them moving forward. And I do have a link there to more information and advice on how to set up a cyber threat intelligence program. I did speak to you about risk register entries uh, and this helps to influence mitigation of cybersecurity risk issues. Uh, it prevents skeletons in the closet. So if we become aware of a risk, and perhaps we have maybe um, an IT executive, you know, an app executive, whomever that says, "That's fine. You know, we're not going to deal with this right now. We'll do, deal with it next year." Terrific. Let's fill out a risk register entry, and we'll get that into the risk governance process, and we can talk about it. And sometimes just that. Hey, we're going to fill out a risk registry entry and it's going to be seen by other layers of executives. Sometimes that will spur on remediation. And if not, these risk register entries either document risk acceptance. That's typically something that's uh, low risk, high cost, um, or it can be used similar to a plan of action and milestone to say we are going to mitigate this risk. Here's milestones. Here's the five steps which bring us to this target remediation date. Quickly, here is a risk register process diagram. Uh, Typically, risk is identified in the cybersecurity realm by the InfoSec teams, though sometimes a process owner. And really, what we're going to do is work with that process owner to create a risk registry entry This is outside of vulnerability scans. It's something else. Uh, And when it comes to step six there in the risk governance swim lane, executive leadership may rarely say, look, we want you to do some more research. We want you to revise this and come back. Or they may say, risk accept, low risk issue, high cost. We'll review it in a year. Or they may say, we agree with your risk mitigation plans here. We we may, by the way, be asking for some funding or staffing priority in this process, but we agree with your plan to risk mitigate. We agree with your three to five uh, milestones or steps to get to that target date. And then you can see when remediation is said to be done, we have InfoSec confirming that, and then notification goes out that uh, that issue has been closed. Heading down the home stretch of this presentation. So strong risk management. Typically, this is for financial institutions, government entities, pharmaceutical companies, very low risk tolerance. Um, one, I would suggest that you should not have the cybersecurity executive or leader um reporting into a CIO or a CTO because it's a conflict of interest. Uh, The the cybersecurity leader should report into someone like the CEO, the chief risk officer, or the board of directors. It is important to have cybersecurity metrics, key performance indicators, key risk indicators, uh, and really that provides risk transparency to the executives, but it also helps us influence risk mitigation and sometimes funding for our program. I do think it's important for the cybersecurity leader to provide updates uh, to the board of directors or similar executive group like a cybersecurity committee. Also, I think it's important for the the cybersecurity program to not just stay at the enterprise level where we're comfortable as cybersecurity professionals, right? Or we're talking about systems and and networks and applications, but we get down into understanding what are the business processes? um, What are the services that the business units, the lines of business have? And do we have the right types of um, cybersecurity fraud prevention controls in place? So to get to that next level and, and prevent something negative from happening. Also to be involved in things like fraud prevention and privacy, which are uh, a little bit peripheral to cyber, Um, we definitely have a role to play there. And I'm a fan of IIA's three lines of defense model, which says that the first line of defense is operational management, right? So that might just be IT or the average employee. They are the first line of defense. Developers are the first line of defense. Second line is risk management functions like cybersecurity, like privacy, like the fraud prevention team, also compliance functions. And then the third line of defense is internal audit. I also think it's important to have self-identified audit issues as a requirement. Uh, Perhaps we're saying. Operational functions and line of business have to declare self-identified audit issues two or four times a year. And it it just reinforces that it's not just the securities team or internal audits team job to identify risk. Everyone has that responsibility in that first line of defense um, operational management. You've all heard about zero trust, uh, and it's an architectural security model. Um, So, that's an important place to get into. Uh, People have challenges with it because, as an architectural model, it's a little bit high level, right? And then also, that gets complicated because vendors will say, Hey, we've solved for zero trust. They haven't. So, on my website, I have a listing of 134 controls. Um, and it's not meant to be a control baseline for zero trust. It's more I've had people say to me, I'm really struggling with the architectural piece. What's What am I selecting from? Like, How do you make this real? So I've had some ideas of here are some controls that you could select. Again, not meaning to solve for zero trust. Carnegie Mellon has. Uh, 21 practices to establish and maintain an insider threat program. Really strongly encourage you um, coming out of this to take a look at that as cybersecurity professionals. Uh, It's an online book in PDF format, it's about 200 pages, but carry this with you throughout your career because we do need to be mindful that uh, there are authorized personnel employees and contractors within our organization that may um, either seek to do harm to the organization or to exfiltrate data. A Little bit more, this is from MITRE talking about insider threat monitoring. Uh, I do wanna hit on some of the themes that they talk about. So insider threats routinely use unsophisticated techniques, tactics and procedures to access and exfiltrate data specifically they're using removable media so we need to make sure in our companies and corporations don't allow people to plug in a usb drive and just take a gig of data out on it uh, on a drive like that also email is a common exfiltration channel so i would recommend blocking access to things like gmail and then we need to monitor outbound email from the corporate um, authorized accounts that all employees and contractors have. Also, cloud storage is used for exfiltration, so blocking things like Dropbox. And then maybe we have exceptions based on business need, but we mitigate a lot of that risk. I mentioned threat hunting before. Again, we could have a morning or a whole day on threat hunting, but Actively searching for adversaries in your environment, we can start by looking um, for suspicious events in our logging, indicators of compromise. So, you'll get an advisory from CISA that says, here are some of the malicious IP addresses. Also, tactics, techniques, and procedures. So, we talked about CISA alerts and advisories, there's also the MITRE uh, attack framework. And then threat hunting based on hypothesis. So an example is we know that sooner or later, we're gonna have an employee that's seeking to export data and take it to their next employer. What would they do? What would that look like? What preventive controls could we put in place? And then one of the things I love about threat hunting is it feeds security monitoring. So you have ideas coming out of that and you say, you know what? we need to put some extra alerts into the SIM. I think this is one of the final slides in in the deck. So very important for you as cybersecurity professionals and students to learn how to influence funding. And it's gonna be different uh, for different organizations, um, depending what industry you're in and then also who are your executives? What what are their drivers? What motivates them? So, some examples of ways to influence funding for your security program for new security controls and or staffing. If you're in a, a financial institution, federal government, pharmaceutical, sometimes it's just compliance, and if you can tie uh, a cybersecurity issue or vulnerability um, to One of the many regulatory requirements, you may be able to get funding uh, to get that resolved. Uh, Operational risk. So, those types of organizations also care about that. Operational risk may be more meaningful to a privately owned company, but we talked about risk tolerance statement, metrics, KPIs, KRIs, having assessments done by an external firm. uh, An assessment report is a non-repudiation vehicle, right? So an exec can say, I don't remember that conversation. I don't remember that email. It's hard to say, I don't remember the assessment report. Also things like tabletop exercises or wargaming's where you uh, wargaming where you involve your senior leadership team, they get put under stress, right? When we're simulating that there's an incident going on, they don't wanna experience that stress in real life, may get you some funding be careful with asking for additional staffing and saying you don't have capacity. Um, if you ask any manager, they're going to say that they're they're understaffed, right? So some ways to go down that path, if every one of your employees has 10 primary and alternate duties, uh, and those all look important, you might be able to convince an executive you don't have enough staff. Also, if A lot of the work is documented in tickets. You may be able to use that ticket data based on the volume and hours to get some staffing. Here's some more subtle things. If continually, you as an individual contributor in cybersecurity or a leader uh, are planning and executing on your goals and delivering, you may get funding in part because of that. The execs know, you know what? If I give money to this person or this manager, I know I'm gonna get return out of it. Communications routines, don't just ask at the end of the year for your funding. You wanna participate in program updates, meeting routines, and give an update every month of what's going on and what the risk is and what type of support you need. Have some one-on-one meetings strategically with executives. And then financial acumen, realize that right around this time of the year, executives have use or lose money so if they don't spend it they'll lose it at the end of the year and also it will hurt them because next year if they're asking for money and they didn't spend all of it this year they're going to take a haircut or get less funding in their new budget so I used to uh, years back I had an executive and I used to kind of stick my head in his door frame and say got any money I've got you know three. Uh, invoices from vendors and, and I'm ready. I'm ready to execute and spend that money. And sometimes I was successful. So with that, Joel, we've reached the end of the presentation and I think we can open it up and see what questions and comments we have.
0: We can, thank you, getting there. One question did come in on the Q&A feature uh, from one of our PhD students. Uh, how do you get by? sorry, how do you get buy-in from security teams that may see these compliance efforts as box ticking exercises?
1: Well, I think it's important to be able to articulate compliance requirements from a risk perspective. And in general, most of them have some value in in terms of how we're going to prevent um, a security issue from happening or to to detect it. Um, There may be some cases where what they're saying is legitimate though. Um, So if one of the things about PCI compliance the way that payment card security is done is there can be compensating controls but we've got to make sure that if we're saying we're not going to cover one requirement, we're not citing another requirement that really doesn't address that issue. But in answer to that question, I think it's a fair thing for the security team to say, hey, your box ticking on um, file integrity monitoring. We've got vulnerability scanning running. We've got many other ways of determining some sort of issue. File integrity monitoring is this antiquated control. And you know what? I might tend to agree with them. So be always be ready to see the other side of the table would be part of my advice.
0: Yeah, great answer. Um, my take on this, because the idea of box ticking, you know, oh, you're not really making yourself more secure. You're ticking boxes. Granted. Right. I, I also do usually try to share is that, well, the reason that those boxes are there is to make you think about these things that sometimes you may skip over. So yes, there is a difference in just trying to do box checking, but but the reason those boxes are there hopefully lead you towards actually making sure you make some smart decisions. So I agree with your answer there very much. Um, we are right at 5.20, which is the official end time of the class. Uh, if a question comes in before I'm done rambling here, we'll be glad to get it in here. Uh, because we know a lot of people typically will will budget uh, till 5:30 on this, uh, anyways. Uh, but as as we do wrap up, I, I do want to again uh, say, Gideon, thank you very much. It's always great to have you. Uh, while this is a four-credit class, a graduate-level lecture class at Purdue University, uh, the public is encouraged to tune in, uh, and those who do so can actually uh, get continuing education. And I know that's uh, a concern of yours as well with as many letters uh, <laughs> as you have uh, designating the certs that you have on this. So we're pleased that the, the general public can tune into this. Um, and uh, we, uh, again, uh, appreciate uh, you taking the time. And I know that in seeing you speak elsewhere and from our conversations that I do hope that we will are able to get you back here in another year or so. Uh, to cover another one of these topics that are not only uh, great uh, things for our students to learn, but also for those uh, in general in the cybersecurity industry to take uh, take interest and take note of. Uh, as I started with your introduction, I encourage all of our uh, attendees and participants uh, to seek you out uh, on social media, especially uh, your heavy um, uh, posting that goes on in LinkedIn, where I follow you very closely. Uh, and I want to encourage everybody getting included Please show up again next week live as Christine Task, a very proud graduate of the Serious program at Purdue University, uh, will return home, air quotes, will return home to, to give our, uh, our seminar again next week. So with that, thanks very much, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Joel.